Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Familiar faces that I see, and um, old faces, and old faces. <laughs> um, also, uh, somebody who does a lot of work behind the scenes, very quietly here at Center of Gravity, is Marcella. She she hides in the back, and she cleans the floor when you're gone, and she types in hundreds of email addresses and all kinds of things. And we almost lost Marcella to the United States a few weeks ago. <laughs> and she now officially has permanent residency. And I just wanted to welcome you to Canada. And we'll help provide oil to your last home country for the next five decades. Um, so, when we gather here and sit, we don't really have too much form. And... Um, one of the things for people who are new to center of gravity who are just learning a little bit about the form of the sitting practice is that we're going to start having workshops um, every two months where we'll spend a day just learning the form of sitting, what the posture is, what to focus on, what kind of obstacles arise. The next one is March 6th and it's full, but um, one after will be in May and we'll just keep doing this until everybody's just sitting. Um, and in my peripheral vision, I can see nose picking and scratching and shifting and um, you know, when we're sitting, um, we're just sitting. And I really like emphasizing the just part. Just to sit and to be open with sound letting sounds come and go in the field of sound and to leave them as sounds, not to pick them up with your attention and turn them into whatever you want them to be or need them to be, or even to like them or dislike them, really just to notice the whole phenomenon of sound appearing and vanishing. 
And then we can do exactly the same thing with our breathing. The breath can come and go in the spaciousness of attentiveness. And the amazing thing about learning how to leave sound alone is that then you can learn how to leave your breath alone. And then you can move through all of the different stages of mindfulness practice, which basically just makes the circle of attention wider and wider and wider so that we can include sound and we can include breathing and we can include feeling and we can include all the phenomenon of the body until we can include all phenomenon, period. And uh, this means really making a vow to include your whole life. And mindfulness is not just bringing attention to things, it's actually being fully open-hearted in the way you do everything that you do. And um, it's a hard practice because it's way easier just to be concentrated on one thing. But actually to be attentive to everything begins, I think, with learning how to just leave sounds and leave your breathing to come and go. So if sensation arises and it feels like you need to itch something, um, you don't. (laughs) Um, You just sit still. And you just watch those sensation appear until you become irritated. And then you watch that. And then you watch how they pass away and then are replaced by something else that's irritating. (laughs) And the problem with the world is that it never actually presents uh, what you want it to present. And so you get to work with irritation, or for some of you, you get to work with boredom, or you get to work with um, social phobia, sitting in a room of strangers, or hunger, or whatever it is. Um, And the interesting thing about having this uh, tradition of form is that the form shows us things that we may not want to look at. And um, that's the trouble with form, is it shows us our conceit, you know, and the grooves that are habitual uh, in our own sort of life of preference. So those are just a few remarks about about the sitting practice. And um, tonight is the last night, supposedly, of our study of of an essay that we've been reading now for, I don't know how long has it been? Yeah, since the end of January? Yeah. So we've been studying an essay by Norman Fisher called The Eight Stages of Monastic Practice, which really are about the eight stages of relationship. And even though the focus here is relationship to your practice, I think you'll read between the lines and see that this is uh, relationship with everything. And um, the stages that we study began with the honeymoon, and then, does anybody remember? Disappointment? Yeah, disappointment or betrayal. And then? Commitment. Uh, Commitment or flight, and then the dry place, which then moves into the last three, which we're going to cover tonight.
which are uh, appreciation, love, and letting go. So um, your mind is already filled up, I'm sure, with images of all your favorite people and how these patterns have shown up in your uh, relationships with them. So I thought we could start just by um, reading the last part of this essay. Now, 140 copies have been made, and over the last month, they've somehow disappeared into bedrooms and in the mail to people you need to send them to, who need to really get this. Um, And so I see that you've all given away your copies, and there's only a few left. So we'll read this last page out loud. And um, do you want to start? Okay. And then we'll just kind of move across the road. And if you just read real nice and slow, um, we'll start little by little. Can you see that? Yeah. yeah. So for those of you who don't have a copy, just, just close your eyes and, and listen. Little by little, this appreciation, which begins as a religious gratitude and is private and quiet and joyful, becomes more normal and ordinary. We begin to take a greater interest in the practicalities of caring for the monastery, and in doing so, we begin to notice how marvelous are all the people with whom we are practicing. We see, of course, their many faults, as we see our own faults, which remain very numerous. But as we forgive and are even grateful for our own faults, we forgive and are grateful for the faults of others. We see others as they are, but despite this, or because of it, we love them deeply. We are as amazed by our community members as we are by the sky and trees and the wisdom of the tradition itself. In fact, we can hardly, after a time, tell the difference between these. This is a different kind of love from the love we have known before. The love we have always understood as what love is, because this love doesn't include very much attachment. We are willing to let uh, people go. In fact, this willingness to let them go is part and parcel of what the love we feel is. It doesn't include jealousy or attachment of any kind. We know that we will eternally be with these people and that wherever we go, we will see these same people. So we don't need to fear or worry. We're willing even to see them grow old or ill and die and to care for them and to bury them and to take joy in doing this, to cover the grave with some dirt and chant a sutra and to walk, walk away full of the joy of knowing that even in the midst of our sadness, nothing in fact has been lost. No one has gone anywhere. Only a beautiful life that was beautiful in the beginning and in the middle has become even more beautiful in the end, even to the point of ineffable perfection. That the brother or sister that we are burying is exactly Buddha, and how privileged we have been for so long to have lived with her and to be able to continue (coughs) to live with her in memory and in the tiny acts of our own lives in the monastery. And we know, too, that we go the other way, too, and very soon, and that in doing so, we can benefit others. 
and give to others what we have been given in the passing of this brother or sister. This is the seventh stage, the stage of love. The eighth and final stage, although I must repeat here what I said in the beginning, that there are in fact no neat stages. There is in fact no ending, that the stages are simultaneous, spiraling, overlapping, both continuous and discontinuous, is the stage of letting go of everything, even of the practice. At this stage, there isn't any practice or teaching or monastery or dharma brothers or sister. There's only life in all its unexpectancy and color. We can leave the monastery or stay, it doesn't matter. We can be with these people or any people or no one. We can live or die. We clearly want to benefit others, but how could one not benefit others? We have certainly plenty of problems, a body, a mind, a world, but we know that these problems are the media of our life as we live it. There isn't much to say or do. We just go on, seeing what will happen next. These stages on the way of mon monastic life are perhaps stages for the human heart in its journey to whole wholeness, whether we live in a monastery or not. Monasteries do help, however, to bring all of this into focus, to bring it up into consciousness, and I believe that monasteries should be open to all of us for at least some time in our lives because all of us have a monk inside us. Once you spend some time in a monastery, to the point where you internalize and make completely your own the schedule and the round of monastic life, then you take that deep pattern and rhythm with you wherever you go. The world itself can be your monastery, when the monastery is within your heart. But this takes time and patience, luck and some help. So when I finished reading this uh, the other day, it hit me that Tuesday evening was coming and that I needed to give a talk on love. And then it hit me that I needed to give a talk on love. <laughs> and um, I don't know exactly how to do that. But one of the things Norman Fisher is saying here is that there is a relationship between love and non-attachment. And I think for most of us, when we think of non-attachment, um, I'm going to just take a, a little bit of a leap and say, this happens a little bit differently. <coughs> I am seeing for men and women. Um, it seems a lot that when women here about non-attachment, what they hear is indifference. And when men hear about non-attachment, uh, they think of coldness or aloofness. And I've been noticing that there is a difference between these, and I'm not going to get too much into that. But it seems that men and women hear this a little bit differently, and maybe sometime we should do a little study together about how men and women interpret non-attachment. But I'm not going to get into that tonight, or we'll never end this essay. Um, but I think for most of us, we think of non-attachment as somehow being a kind of witness to life. That we're a part. 
And really, to think of yourself as witnessing your life, there has to be a you inside this skin, and there has to be a life over there. And I think some of the unskillful way of uh, talking about mindfulness is talking about a practice where you're witnessing experience. And I think what that set up is a kind of witness over here and an experience over here and doesn't really value the interconnection between the two. But actually, the space that's set up in noticing experience without clinging to it is actually the space, I think, where love can really grow, can really flourish. Because although we often think of love as attachment, it's actually exactly the opposite. Because what we're attached to are views. And the term non-attachment, vairagyam, vairagya, um, there's a wonderful translation of vairagya by Thich Nhat Hanh, who instead of calling it non-attachment, calls it throwing away. <laughs> you know, and I think sometimes we need to be told this, that non-attachment is actually throwing away. And what's it throwing away? Notions. People are suffering because they cherish notions. And maybe for the non-meditator, that's impossible to see. How much of your personal suffering comes from holding on to notions? And also, nations do this too. Nations hold on to notions of themselves and of others that create pride and create nationalism and create suffering. <clears throat> Tremendous suffering, actually. And um, maybe now, as the world seems to tailspin economically and ecologically, and maybe people don't know what the next big question is going to be for human beings, we might be able to guess that really what we're all going to be faced with when uh, oil runs out and when our Great Lakes are polluted and when um, we're in greater ecological trouble than we are now is that our ideas about what a life is and how to live it and our lifestyle are going to be challenged. And while there's a practical side to it, the deeper part is our stories really need to be updated. And addicts don't like new stories. And so they'll risk more and more to keep the old story going. And um, the greater the risk, the greater the trouble is for those around us. We do whatever we can to keep... And this is no way to live in a community. To live in a community means to have people, um, just by being other people, challenge your stories about yourself and about them. You can't be intimate with others and be, and be living in a story of the other. And maybe in the dry phase, which we've covered, right? We've gone through that. Um, what we're doing is we're, we're getting seasoned. 
so that we're uh, drying out the old stories till they become brittle, and we can throw them away. Now the thing is, is you can't ever truly throw away a perspective. And maybe this is where I don't like that translation of non-attachment. Because you can't ever get rid of a concept. And the meditators know that too. You can't ever get rid of thoughts. But what you can do is you can multiply them. So that in actual fact, what the meditator is doing is they're creating more and more space so that there are more and more possible perspectives. So it's not that you take your idea of someone and you throw it away, because I would say from a psychological perspective, that's repression. Actually, what you do is you, through the process of seeing more clearly, you create more and more space for you to see the other person from multiple perspectives. Like, you know, like M.C. Escher. I know it's cliche to talk about M.C. It's like reading a Mary Oliver poem or something, you know. But, I mean, it's this kind of way of being able to look at something over and over and over again until um, the mystery of the thing presents itself. And so maybe transcendence or freedom is just guaranteeing another person's freedom. And instead of you and I trying to get free ourselves, maybe by creating enough space for others to be free, we free ourselves. And so maybe love is just the impersonal freedom that shows up when we have uh, uh, suffered from the indigestion of being projectors all the time. And saying, I am, I am, I am, I am. You are, you are, you are, you are. No relationship can survive like that. I am, you are. It doesn't work. I just quoted Thich Nhat Hanh, and one, one thing that comes up for me is Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful phrase, you know, interbeing. So maybe instead of saying, I am, you can say, I inter-am which uh, guarantees a kind of indirection. Uh, Somebody that that I spent a lot of time corresponding with uh, is a a French philosopher named Lucie Rigri, and she has a phrase that she likes to use called, I love to you. She thinks everybody should abandon this term, I love you, because it makes it feel that you have some kind of love that you can either give or not. And she uses this phrase, I love to you, which is a little better. This this sort of sense that love is what happens when I allow you to be who you are. And, you know, to let someone be who they are is really uncomfortable. I mean, imagine being in a community where everyone's really being themselves. It's kind of an awful place to be. (laughs) If you have a certain version of yourself that you need to to keep up. Um, Here's the Buddha's definition of non-attachment. When seeing, hearing, or sensing something and considering it as the only thing that can bring comfort and advantage to yourself, 
then you are always inclined to get caught in it and rule out everything else as inferior. You want to hear that again? When seeing, hearing, or sensing something and considering it as the only thing that can bring comfort and advantage to yourself, you are always inclined to get caught in it and rule out everything else as inferior. One of the reasons why we practice meditation is to reduce stress, actually. Because when we're stressed, um, we can't get, we can't help but just seeing things in terms of what they can do for us and other people in terms of what we can get from them. And then we're kind of pushing people out of the way to sort of get what we want and get what we need. And we don't even wonder maybe what they need and what they want and how they feel appreciated. And actually, everybody you know uh, needs something different and needs to be appreciated in a different way. And you can only know that by letting go of your view of them. I don't know how many of you, how many of you live with someone where you wake up in the morning and they're there? Yeah, not so many. (laughs) Very interesting. I always thought this would be a great practice if you live with someone. When you wake up in the morning, you just look over at them and you just go, you know, you you kind of, like, oh my God, you know, yeah. As if it was like a one-night stand, you know, and you, and you just kind of look over and uh, who is this person, you know? Because most of the time when you live with someone, you know, you finish their sentences, you look, you don't even really see them. And um, maybe this would kind of freshen things up. So last week, the way we talked about this was with a koan, and I'm just going to read it again, because maybe we can just shed light on it from a different perspective. So this is from um, um, Kaz Tanahashi and John Daidalori's translation of the Essential Dharma Gate. It goes like this. Gongshan of Mount Longtan was making rice cakes for a living. When he met Tian Wang, he bowed and left his household. Tian Wang said, so Tian Wang is the teacher, Um, be my attendant. From now on, I will teach you the essential Dharma gate. So the essential Dharma gate, what that means is, I will teach you the essence of the gate that you can open to really enter your life. And the way I'm going to do that is I just want you to be my attendant. So for those of you who study, you know, some of you will be here this weekend when Roshi comes, and so I will be her attendant, so you'll see me following her around and bringing her a lot of espresso and (laughs) bowing to her. She's a Manhattan Zen teacher. Um, After a year pass, Longtan said to his teacher, when I arrived, you said you would teach me the essential Dharma gate and I haven't received any of your instructions yet. 
Xianwang said, I've been teaching you for a long time. Longtan said, What have you been teaching me? Tianwang said, When you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. Longtan was silent for a while, and Tianwang said, When you see it, you just see it, and when you think about it, you miss it. Long Tan then had a great realization. <laughs> now, this may seem just like a little riddle to you, but if we unpack it a bit, I think it's saying exactly what Norman Fisher is trying to say about love and about letting go. That in the dry phase, where things are mechanical, has anyone here ever been through one of these dry phases? Like, maybe don't listen here, like, intellectually, but really, like, in your heart. Like, do you remember what the dry phase... Maybe some of you are in the dry phase. With other people, maybe with your own practice. You know. And we don't notice the interbeing of one another. And this student didn't notice that what the teacher was teaching him was bowing. In other words, here in this Sangha, the way one person sits creates the person who's sitting beside them. And the teacher says, when you greet me, I bow. That's the whole practice right there. But the student thought the practice looked different and must have been something else. And in the asana practice, it's exactly the same thing. Oh, I need to learn more postures. <coughs> and then we kind of miss all the internal cues that wake us up to the reality of this and the preciousness of this moment. And maybe this is what we called in relationship, you know, the opposite of love, which is just taking things for granted and not really seeing and appreciating um, all the tiny ways we sculpt each other, we inter-are, we interlive, and we interbreathe, and so on. And so, non-attachment means total engagement and embeddedness and action. So non-attachment is not like sitting back going, oh, look at the way life is unfolding. Those people, they're just like sounds coming and going. No, what happens actually is when you notice sound coming and going, you become intimate with sound. When I notice my distraction and my ideas about you, then the noticing it allows me not to cling to it and creates the conditions for embeddedness and for engagement. Does this make sense? So non-attachment is non-separateness, is unity. Yes? Because if I'm not clinging to my view, then I can see you again. And in seeing you, I feel myself again. But in a way where we're inter-being, not 
codependent. Codependent is the opposite of interdependent. In codependence, it's like nobody sees anybody. We're just one. And, you know, you can't see your friends, and I won't see my friends. And we'll just rent movies together and be in romantic bliss. And um, just, you know, hide out. I think that's a good phase for everyone. Good five or seven years, you should do that. (laughs) Just to really know what it's like, you know, to lose your life. And um, then to gain the wisdom of actually really learning um, how to see someone and to allow yourself to be seen independent of all the filters that we set up and using your relationship as a key to your practice. And we're all in relationship. So I'm not talking about lovers. I'm not talking about husbands and wives and children only or pets or whatever. Uh, We're all in relationship. All we are is relationship. I remember one time on a retreat being really frustrated at these teachings of emptiness, you know. And I said to my friend Trudy Goodman, you know, what? Like, is everything just empty? And she said, yeah. Everything's empty except of relationship. You know, you're empty of a separate self because all you are is relationship. And then she told me a story of how her and her friend had a Zen teacher coming from Asia to the States. And their job was to pick the teacher up at the airport. This is my favorite thing with Roshi. I like picking her up from the airport. and It's always fun, the first ten minutes. (laughs) And... um, they had to pick this Asian man up from the airport, and so they were in a car with this a- a- famous Asian teacher. And the, and the nice thing about being in a car with a teacher, it's kind of like for any of you who have kids, this is the best time to bring up like the hard topics. <laughs> like the kids in the back seat, you don't have to look at each other. You can just say, <laughs> so, do you know how you know to make a baby? <laughs> or whatever. I remember this with my son. I'm digressing, but I remember with my son, and I said, you know, to make a baby, you, you need a, a penis and a vagina, and, you know, the penis goes in the vagina. You did that? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, you're so brave. <laughs> and, um, so anyway, it's shootiness in the car and, uh, and, and uh, uh, had this, this Zen teacher cornered and um, had the nerve to say, could you tell us what's the final koan? Like when you get to the end of all these koans, what's the last koan? That's a good question, huh? When the teacher said, uh, well, I can't tell you. 
what the last koan is, but I'll tell you the answer. <laughs> and they said, okay, well, what's the answer? I said, love. I like this story. Um, maybe this is the only koan that's really important, is this, this teaching of love. And, um, you know, we're, we're a young sangha here. We've only been around maybe six or seven years. Some of you I've known much longer than that. But, um, we haven't really buried each other yet. Or There's been some weddings and some various other episodes. <laughs> we'll save that for the gossip column. But we've got a really clean and good track record here. Um, there haven't been bad affairs. There haven't been. There's no been no money laundering that I know of. <laughs> there's been no money that I know of. <laughs> you know? Um, but still, we haven't <laughs> really. We haven't really, you know, buried people here. And when you look around the room, I mean, some of us are going to outlive others. And our relationships really are impermanent and changing. And um, maybe we shouldn't wait until the funeral of some of you to be able to appreciate the way you bow, the way you fall asleep, the way you are awake, the way you walk, your spine, your hair, your eyes, you know. And it's possible that maybe if we do that in this room with these people, especially when we go on retreats too and have more intimate time together, that maybe we'll learn something about how to do this with ourselves and how to do this with others. Sometimes I judge my entire practice on the way I relate to my teacher. Because... Sometimes she's stellar, and sometimes she's awful. And I see all of those things. And usually where I'm at in my practice totally shows up in my relationship with my teachers. And then I'm learning something not about them. I'm learning something about myself that then seasons my own heart for my work with others and my enjoyment of others. And maybe this is true for you also. Especially in your relationship with form. Because the form is empty. But yet you can't see that without the form. And uh, maybe in the long run it doesn't even matter what the form is. Maybe it doesn't matter what your practice is, actually. Uh, But maybe um, it's the way that your practice becomes a mirror for your life. And not everybody has a practice that they can treat that way. Or a practice that's been refined by thousands of people for thousands of years that is able to catch the flaws in itself. Any good practice can turn the light on itself and see the flaws in the practice. And then maybe that's what religion is. It's this incredible conversation that thousands of people have had over a long time 
and have developed, fortunately and unfortunately, a vocabulary for being able to really look at what makes a life meaningful. And maybe when we forget about the fact that that's a human-designed process, uh, we lose touch with what's good about living a religious life. So, anyways, um, maybe the most important part of this essay is about just this, is about the way that love flourishes when we can really drop um, our notions. (coughs) Maybe. And then... um, like in this koan, uh, when you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. And then the student is silent. And then Tian Wang said, when you see it, you just see it. When you see it, you just see it. Is that the best way to describe intimacy? When you see it, you just see it. And it's not good or bad. You can love the person and you can bury the person. And you see it, you just see it. So, do any of you have any comments or thoughts you want to share about uh, the punchline? What comes to my mind when we talk about love flourishing and then the punchline um, and letting go of notions is how um, parenting occurs Mm -hmm. and how parenting occurs because it occurs. Mm -hmm. It's not because we suddenly decide we're going to be the best parent or whatever. Mm -hmm. We try to do that sometimes, but that's just getting in the way. And when parenting occurs, there's a spontaneous flourishing of love, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if we let it, Mm -hmm. if we get our own stuff out of the way enough to allow it to happen. And this is precisely to me what Mm -hmm. you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that in other relationships, Mm -hmm. so it's like, it's, it's like, you know, the trainer wheel relationship when you mm-hmm. do the parenting piece and yeah. you hopefully get enough of a reflection from yeah. that to do it in the For relationship. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I often think that people who don't have kids need to find ways of uh, being around kids somehow. We live in a community where it's so things are so stratified. But also... Um, Finding ways to parent. And there's so many ways to parent that don't involve having kids. Even having kids around. There are ways you can find that same kind of love without necessarily having, you know, adopting kids or whatever you need and to do. And um, it can be a relationship with uh, an art practice. It can be a relationship with a garden. It can be a relationship with something that you can't control. 
you know, and to really let that teach you over a long period of time. Maybe it can be a relationship between a piece of land. I think it would be so wonderful if we all had a piece of land, just a certain sidewalk, even, that you know for 20 years, that can teach you, and you keep going back to that piece of land. Or you have a certain um, practice with uh, kale, you know? And you keep growing the same kale every year. Well, there's some kind of consistency until it becomes a mirror. You know? I see that a lot with people with their pets, too. With pets, yeah. yeah. Being a custodian of some sort, I yeah. think, or serving in some way, yeah. it's, it's, it's the same. Yeah, <clears throat> totally. Somebody else. Anything that comes up for you? Yeah. Um, I just I couldn't help uh, hearing Norman Fisher's uh, reflections on love there, hearing it in relation to actually a eulogy I heard him mm-hmm. give uh, just before the funeral of his best friend in San Francisco mm-hmm. a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it sheds a lot of light on this, because what he spoke about is he said, uh, you know, as a Zen abbot for mm-hmm. years, I've been teaching and writing about non-attachment mm-hmm. um, and love yeah and but today you know my best friend just died mm-hmm. and so love demands of me that I cry and mm-hmm. that I am sad yeah and uh, I understand that a lot more now after hearing this and I think mm-hmm. the way I hear it is um, that on some level non-attachment itself, can easily become another notion (laughs) in relationship and that to throw away non-attachment and just cry because Mm -hmm. you miss or need somebody is also in itself a form like an expression of non-attachment yes yeah that's that's why i uh, you know whenever i'm working with people and they come out of a tradition of meditation that talks about like witnessing or just observing it's like the flags go up the alarm, the the panic the red flags go up panic may not be the right word but um because there's a way where non-attachment becomes reified and the experience of non-attachment is the experience of samadhi of integration so that the feeling of not clinging to sound is to become sound. To not clinging to a raindrop is that you become as small as a raindrop and you're equal, even though you're not a raindrop. And then there's intimacy, even though you're not a raindrop. Even though you're not a raindrop. And I think that when we talk about non-attachment or meditation as kind of witnessing or observing, it doesn't describe the feeling of that. So the feeling of not clinging to sadness is to feel pure, deep sadness. Do you know? And to, to, to not cling to breathing is to let the breath come and go 
and then to feel the breath deeply. Like I said in the instructions tonight, you know, when you become intimate with breathing, the breath becomes totally impersonal. When you become intimate with sound, it's impersonal. And then there's a release through the soft palate, through the root of the tongue, and then the, the heart physiologically. It's not just a metaphor. But the tongue releases, and we have an aesthetic experience. It's like when you see really good art. I remember this the first time I saw a Mark Rothko painting. And it was in Buffalo at the Albright Knox Museum. And they have this one room, I don't know if they still have it, but it's this really long room. It's all white, and at the end of it is just a painting called Red and Orange. And it's just like pure red and orange. And I remember standing there and just going, well, the root of the palate releases, the soft palate lifts. Do you know this feeling? It's like just before you're about to taste something, And then this woman behind me says, we have a bigger one of those in Baltimore. (laughs) But actually my experience was like, that also could be absorbed by this painting. There was nothing you could say that couldn't be absorbed by this painting. So actually, um, non-attachment is actually an aesthetic experience. Just like when you see an incredible sunset, you go... (coughs) And the person beside you says, we should buy land here. Or or like whatever the thing is, right? But you can actually encompass that whole thing all at once. The human and also the transpersonal. And um, so this is a little bit about what love is. It's, it's, It's the flourishing that shows up when we have this kind of... Um, it's like just it's it's like another person is like a confectionery, like, and and this is appreciation. It's space. Yeah. Somebody else. I don't know. Yeah. I have a question. A comment and a question on parenting and <laughs> parenting your own yeah. parents. You know, uh-huh. as you get an adult and the whole idea of. Accepting the way yeah. they are while not falling into the old grooves, yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I just also wanted to share how, uh, and for those of us who are multicultural and have two homes, uh, yeah. I flew, I flew, I flew by visiting, and I lo- they lost my luggage. The airline lost my luggage for three weeks out of a four-week trip. So in terms of non-attachment, uh-huh. it was extremely uh, interesting to yeah. actually live it. And um, I kept telling myself, and that even though I had to buy a few extra things, travel yeah. light, and uh, and I was actually laughing, thinking, well, what if what if I fly back to Toronto and they actually ship my luggage back? I would have had my luggage, I, I would have packed it and not opened it, I would have been fine. Yeah, it was a very interesting uh, yeah, yeah. experience. But but to go back to that uh, yeah. to that idea of parenting and also the na- nations have notions having uh-huh. two homes. Whenever you go to your first home, yeah. you kind of clash with that difference, and, yeah. and you're an outsider. And, yeah, of course, of course. And, yeah. and dealing with parenting your parents, like accepting them the way they are, mm-hmm. while not falling into the uh, the old grooves and boundary setting. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of fine line. Mm-hmm. What uh, would 
Well, I don't know if I really have anything to add. I mean, I, I know for me, any time I've moved and I watch the van drive away, I just think, just go. <laughs> You know, keep going. <laughs> um, and you know, with our parents, I, I think you know. For me, one of the the experiences that really affected me a lot in terms of non-attachment and with parents is, um, I remember one day it was Father's Day. And I did this meditation where, and a lot of us have done this before, because I've often led this, where you meditate on your father. It's not easy to do, actually. Like, to really just get an image of your father. You do this with a mother, also. Or, you know, a caregiver or whoever. Just meditate on your father, and then meditate on your father when he was your age. The same age as you. And you just, you put aside, like, how much you care about him, and also all the awful things that may, like, whatever your story, you just put it aside, and just really, like, picture what they wore that, what they would wear, and what their hair looked like when they were your age. And then when you were 16, like, picture your father when your father was 16, and then picture him when he was just born. Just born. And, like, this is really deep concentration practice, actually. To just strip away all the stories and to see your parents' life, both of them, as restricted in the same way that your life is restricted in some ways. And to be able to stop thinking about them as a father, and to think about him as a man, or not a mother, but a woman, or not whoever your caregiver was, as a person. And we always say things like, oh, my parents, you know, they never see me, or whatever. But I think sometimes the other is true also. And like maybe when we're always saying, like, seeing our parents through this filter of like mom or dad, we don't often really see the person there. Mm -hmm. And especially if you have parents from a generation where they really thought of themselves as mom and dad. And actually they've never really allowed themselves to be outside that, or they've never allowed you to see that. But you can do it with your imagination. This is the amazing thing about imagination. And it's where it's so healing. Um, and then we can practice having kindness towards them. Um, that has nothing to do with your history together. Because you have a life, you got married, you got divorced, you had a baby, you had a career, you didn't have a baby, you didn't have a career, you've got a job, you have a fake job, you know... <laughs> Someone told me the only thing that gets manufactured in Toronto anymore are sandwiches. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but anyways. Um, but actually, all those things don't really cover your life. They don't really cover what your life is. They can't. You know, 
And so is it possible for us to see that also? That a parent is a notion. And it actually is a scaffolding that really, it limits how we can relate to people. Um, And I'd say those of you who've been wounded by parents who don't have good boundaries have the hardest time doing this. Because for people whose parents weren't really parents but were like best friends, you know, and had sloppy boundaries where you had to be the parent, you know, those are the hardest people to be able to really see as people. Because <laughs> those are the people we most want to see as mom and dad because they weren't, you know, and so. These are all the ways we can, I think, practice love and um, sangha. So maybe we'll stop there. Um, I'll just say one thing before we finish. Uh, next, so, so this coming weekend, obviously, is uh, Roshi. And then next Tuesday, we're going to start a new theme. And we're going to spend three months studying the Lotus Sutra. What have I got us into? (laughs) If you don't know the Lotus Sutra, you haven't thought. What has he gotten us into? But, whoa. This requires, like, full-on imagination. (laughs) And um, we're mostly going to study from the Burton Watson translation. So it's impossible to photocopy this. So I really recommend that you go home and you go online or you go to tight books or wherever and you order the Lotus Sutra, the Burton Watson translation. I know it's a bit of an old school translation, but I think it's the best. And we're going to study the Lotus Sutra in depth. And this is like a key Mahayana text. And next week, we're not going to jump into the Lotus Sutra, but I'm just going to set it up historically because some of you hear words like Theravada, Mahayana, you know, and you don't know what the difference is or how they're related. So that's what we'll do next, next week. Um, so let's finish chanting and then we'll call it a night. <laughs>